0: To Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we are speaking with Dr. Rick Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a professor of medicine and the chief of the renal division and hypertension at the University of Colorado, and he's been there since roughly 2008. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he studied anthropology, which makes him a unique guest for us, like we've had with Dr. Quinn in the past, where he looks at things from an anthropologic perspective as well as the mechanistic scientific perspective that we need to look at things to understand the risks of disease based on current decisions that we make in the context of the past. Dr. Johnson has been studying the role of sugar and specifically fructose in sugar and how it has been driving the diseases that we see as obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and diseases of the kidneys. He is a prolific author of scientific literature as well as uh, the author of three books. He's written over 700 publications in major medical journals. His three books to date are The Sugar Fix, The Fat Switch, and now the one called Nature Wants Us to be Fat, which is due to be released on February 8th of 2022. I had the pleasure of reading a pre-publication copy of the current book, Nature Wants Us to be Fat and it is incredible. All I can tell you is it's going to be on my most gifted book list this year. He absolutely does a marvelous job in looking back through time from the anthropologic perspective as to why humans are developing disease based on modern choices. Why did we go down the pathway of learning to store fat based on foods that we consume or based on dehydration or based on salt exposure. I mean all of these things that his research lab has figured out is concisely laid out in this 200-page book for all to understand the mechanisms behind now why our choices are driving us in the wrong direction as a society and as individuals. And I highly 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 encourage everybody to purchase this book as soon as it comes out. Dr. Johnson had a hard stop at 1 hour. So the podcast didn't get into some of the places that I would have loved to have gone, but we got into a ton of the material. I'm hoping to get him back on the show in the next few months to go deeper into some more research that he has in pre-publication regarding preeclampsia and risk of disease based on the ingestion of fructose and other metabolic uh, consequences of our behavior, specifically around the pregnancy state. But for what it's worth, this podcast interview was phenomenal for me. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Dr. Johnson is a stimulating researcher and a great speaker, so it's a very pleasurable conversation to have, and I hope you enjoy listening to him. So here we go. Well, good morning, Rick Johnson from the other side of the country in Colorado there. I appreciate having you on the podcast today, and, you know, Rick, thank you, first of all, for sending me your New book that's about to be published in a few weeks, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. It is an absolutely incredible read up there with my two favorite books, Navigating Metabolism by Navdeep Chandel and Michael Pollan's In Defense of Food. It is now going to be one of my gifted books for the year, let me tell you that. But your work um, is incredible. Um, I've also learned that you're an onion peeler. You get into a pro you get into a project you see what you see you peel you peel you peel and then you keep getting deeper into the work and that is absolutely also incredible but you're you know you're a kidney doctor how did you get into the world of obesity and metabolic syndrome from the kidneys
1: yeah no it's a circuitous route chris and uh, thank you by the way for inviting me to be on your program um so you know uh I actually, I wasn't going to be a doctor, I was going to, I I particularly liked anthropology and archaeology. And, you know, that's what I was studying as an undergrad, my father was an academic physician, though, and always suggested that I should, you know, pursue medicine, and that I would enjoy helping patients and taking care of people. And uh, when I did go into medicine, I, I knew that maybe I would do clinical medicine, but I, you know, became more interested in the disease than in in just helping the patient because if I could try to figure out the cause of diseases, I could have a bigger impact. And so I decided that I wanted to do both research and clinical medicine. Um, And I ended up in kidney disease because uh, uh, it's sort of fortuitous, but I was working on a kidney ward and really enjoyed uh, those patients. And I ended up in this field of kidney disease and uh, you know, as I was studying this, I real my first interest was in some classic kidney diseases, but then um, I became interested in high blood pressure because high blood pressure is very much linked with the kidney. There's a thought that in high blood pressure, there's a problem with salt excretion by the kidney, and trying to understand why the kidney would have trouble excreting salt was a big question to me. And uh, we began to realize that you know everyone was kind of looking at at uh, things you know like uh, angiotensin and hormones and 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 uh, vasoactive substances substances that could cause blood vessel constriction as causing high blood pressure but people really weren't looking at the kidney itself and I realized that low-grade damage to the kidney might be a mechanism for uh, causing an impairment in salt and so we started creating these models of kidney disease with where we could, and we found that when we did these models, we could animal models, we could uh, recreate high blood pressure and with all the features of high blood pressure. And, and it turned out that there was a substance, uric acid that people had linked with high blood pressure. And when we raised uric acid in animals, they developed high blood pressure. And not only that, they developed low-grade damage to their kidneys and had some trouble excreting salt. So then we go, oh my God, could we have stumbled on a mechanism for high blood pressure that could be very important. And uric acid turns out to be very, very commonly elevated in people with hypertension and, uh, and so, uh, that took me to what could raise the uric acid and, uh, and when we started looking at it, you know, everybody, uric acid is the substance, you know, that everybody has in their blood and. And it's, uh, you know, kind of a breakdown product for DNA um, and energy, ATP. It's, uh, it's a substance that's associated with gout um, and is thought to be the cause of gout. But everybody has uric acid in their blood, and some people have higher levels. And it seemed like the ones with the higher levels were more at risk for developing high blood pressure. And so we, we were saying, well, you know, what dries up uric acid? And And, you know, the classic teaching is it's, you know... Purines, which are kind of breakdown products of DNA as well, and uh nitrogen-containing substances. Uh, and and they're in foods like uh like they're in beer and and they're in some meats and gravies and things like that. And so people usually think of that as the cause of raising the uric acid, but there's another main cause, and that's sugar. And, um, when we started looking at sugar, we realized that it, that sugar intake was going up in parallel with, uh, the rise in uric acid over the last century and in rise in, and in parallel with the rise in blood pressure. And it, there was a very strong correlation. So we go, oh my gosh, you know, let's study sugar. And so we started studying sugar and, and that took me into the world of metabolic syndrome and obesity and, And as we started studying this, we began to realize that we had found some important uh, clues to what causes obesity and that, you know, over the last 20 years, I've been working on that and uh, the book kind of summarizes some of our discoveries along the way. And there, there were quite a few.
0: So let's start there, because you know, in the book, and and one of the things I loved about it was the framework of how you laid it out with the evolutionary perspective as to the why, before we get into the complex science of to how is actually happening mechanistically, and then to the solution of the, the 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 dietary changes you can do. So go back all the way to Proconsul. Let's start there: the the the, the apes migrating and changes in in mutations of genetics.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you know, so the We probably should just begin by saying, you know, our work started showing that uric acid was really important in uh, high blood pressure, as I mentioned, and we actually did a study in children and found that 90% of adolescents with high blood pressure um, from, you know, what we call primary hypertension or the main cause of high blood pressure, 90% of them had high uric acids. And when we lowered the uric acid, we could lower blood pressure published that in JAMA it was kind of a big discovery and it kind of opened up the idea that uric acid could be very important in blood pressure. And when we were studying it in sugar, uh, and we found that the the sugar that was really responsible, the component of sugar that seemed to be driving it was fructose and table sugar consists of uh, a molecule of fructose and a molecule of glucose bound together. And when you eat table sugar, they separate and you, you absorb glucose, which is the main carbohydrate in our blood. And we also absorb fructose. And that fructose, when it's metabolized, generates uric acid. And what we found is that if we gave fructose to animals and the fructose is given to humans, there's an immediate rise in blood pressure. And it's related to a rise in uric acid. And in fact, if you block uric acid you can block the blood pressure rise in humans to uh, to sugar and to fructose. So, so we, we really know that uric acid is generated by sugar and by fructose in particular, and fructose uh, is a uh, is present in fruit, which we think of as healthy. And certainly if you eat natural fruits, they contain lots of substances that are really good for health. But if you eat a huge amount of of fructose, uh, you know, like in table sugar, where you get a concentrated amount, or if you eat large amounts of fruit, you can get enough fructose to raise blood pressure and, and to, uh, really raise uric acid and activate this whole process. And we, we also found that the uric acid was involved also in the, in the, uh, development of obesity and, um, And so that it was important in fat production and also in insulin resistance. So this, this fructose uric acid pathway looked like it was really important in the process of metabolic syndrome. And so the question was, you know, um, you know, you know, what's driving this process? Um, And we talked about sugar intake as being the main thing. But there was another factor, which is what you're alluding to. And and that other factor is that for some reason, humans have higher uric acid levels than most other mammals. And we, we uh, are like unique. We have had a mutation that occurred millions of years ago that resulted in us having a higher uric acid. So humans are at risk for gout, which is when the uric acid goes so high that it forms crystals in, in the joints and causes this terrible uh, joint pains called gout. Um, and, and humans get gout, but most mammals don't. Uh, we can talk about it, because like uh, birds have have the same mutation as we do, and they can get gout. And, uh, but but most mammals do not. So uh, the quiet, you know, so I was thinking about this, and I go, now why, why in the world, would humans have a high uric acid if it causes gout and if it's involved in high blood pressure and obesity, and you know, why, why would we have a high uric acid to begin with? And then on top of that high uric acid, when we eat sugar, the uric acid even goes higher. So we have a, we have a high uric acid compared to like a mouse, but uh, we, when we eat sugar, it even goes higher so we can get really high uric acids. And it seemed like, when we looked at the population, the, the uric acid levels had increased from around three milligram percent, uh, in 1920 to like six milligram percent. And it was all correlated with an increase in sugar and and alcohol and other things that can raise uric acid. And so our population today has higher uric acid levels than we did a hundred years ago. But even the the levels a hundred years ago are higher than what you see in most mammals. So we actually went to the San Diego Zoo and we try to understand, you know, the uric acid levels in most mammals is around one. And even in, uh, you know, like monkeys. It's like the uric acid levels like around one, but when you measure the uric acid in, in humans and apes, it's much higher. And so the mutation involved both it was a common ancestor to the apes and to humans. And so they somewhere way back when that ancestor got a mutation uh, in uric acid metabolism that led to a higher uric acid. That, um, you know, that mutation had been identified. So normally when our uric acid is removed, uh, from, uh, by, by an enzyme. So in most animals, they have this enzyme in their liver that if you make too much uric acid, it chews it up. And then you just, uh, you pass the products of the uric acid into the urine and, and everything's fine. But in humans, there was a mutation that knocked out that enzyme. So we can't chew up uric acid very well. And so what we do is we have to excrete it through the, through the kidneys and the gut. And so and, and the gut and the kidneys aren't so effective at it. So the uric acid levels tend to be higher. So a normal uric acid I said is like one in most mammals, but in an animal that doesn't have this enzyme, uh, they have uric acid levels of around three. So when we went to the zoo and measured like the uric acid in a gorilla, it was around three. And, uh, and, um, and, and then we also, I did, I I measured uric acid in people living in, in, uh, you know, like the jungles of, uh, Venezuela, where they were eating native diets. There's a group there called the Yanomamo Indians and they, uh, you know, they're eating some fruit. And they're eating game and, uh, they, they have a uric acid around three as well. So, but in the, in the Western civilization where there's sugar and a lot of beer and other things that can raise uric acid, the the uric acid levels are much higher. So instead of being around three, which is like, what's also with the gorilla. Um, it, they're like five, six, seven, eight. And it, and it, and some people have uric acids of 10 or higher. And the people who have uric acids of over, over five and a half or over six, they have a mark of the increased risk of high blood pressure and the higher the uric acid, the higher the risk. So, so it didn't, you know, when I, Chris, when we were looking at this, we said, okay, you know. You're, having a high uric acid doesn't seem to be such a good thing, you know, it, it's associated with obesity and diabetes and kidney disease and fatty exactly. liver and um, uh, high blood pressure uh, and gout. Uh, you know, I don't think we want to have a high uric acid. So why would this mutation occur?
0: Right. We know right. nature doesn't make mistakes in genetics. So exactly. So. Yeah, if exactly. Take not the onion not very often. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so I got curious and, you know, my anthropology background, I was very interested, started reading about it. And I, and I found out that not only was there a mutation in a, in the, our ancestors, and it was an ancestor of us and the great apes, but there was the ancestor of the lesser apes also had a mutation and it was at the same time. It was like within a you know, one, one mutation occurred 15 million years ago, and another one occurred 12 million years ago, about. So there was something funny going on back then. So, uh, you know, Google is a wonderful tool. <laughs> and, uh, and I recommend it. I love Google. And I love Google Scholar. And I began by just reading. I read everything I could about what was going on back then, and especially as it related to our ancestors. And what I've uh, found was that it was a, uh, it was a period of time called the Miocene, <laughs> you know, it was an epic called the Miocene. And, and it was famous uh, for our ancestors because it was in the Miocene that the first uh, kind of prehistoric ape occurred. And as you said, that his name was Proconsul and uh, it was named proconsul be- after a chimpanzee named consul that was uh in vaudeville in the 1890s in, in paris and that ape could or that chimpanzee could ride a bicycle wear a suit smoke cigars and uh and was quite a character and whoever found the fir- f- the very first skeleton decided to call it proconsul because it was before consul but it was uh it was the first ape. And what, a, what a, the big difference is, you know, apes have big heads, they're tailless and they're much bigger animals. And they're probably, you know, they're smarter than the average primate. And these early apes lived in Africa and they lived in East Africa in the tropical rainforest there. And they lived in the, in the trees and they 90% of their food was fruit. I mean, they ate some other things, but <clears throat> fruit was by far their main staple, um, and um, and they ate fruit all year round because they were in tropical rainforest where fruit was available all year round, and it was like a. I've been told it was like the Garden of Eden, uh, because it was just the perfect place to be, uh, and these animals uh, rapidly evolved, and you know by. 18 million years ago, there were like 10 or 20 species of ape down there. I mean, today there's only five species of ape. And so this was really a, a very good time for them. And then, um, so a friend of mine said a cold wind blew through the jungle because, uh, and global cooling began. So the opposite of what's going on now, we had global cooling. And um, the, Ar- the Arctic and the poles started to accumulate ice, and the sea levels fell. Instead of sea levels rising, sea levels fell, and Africa, which had been separated from Europe, suddenly there were land bridges, and these uh, many many animals could migrate into Europe, and and the, among them were these prehistoric apes. And so initially when they got to Europe there, there was still uh, fruit was available all year round there too. And they didn't have to change their habits. They could just stay in the trees um, and do what their thing, but as it got cooler and cooler, um, you know, they started to uh, lose their habitat in Europe where it was farther north. It was, it got cooler than in Africa. And so as that happened, the, um, the the fruit trees started to become more sparse. Uh, there was a change in forest to more like of a deciduous types of trees. There was the beginning of some open uh, grasslands and savannas. And these animals could no longer just live in the trees. And they had to come down and start foraging for other foods and in, in like um, tubers and roots and they had to eat other things. So it was, a, you know, it was, it was tough on them because they, they weren't really knew how to do that. They weren't geared up to do that. And they, there was a lot of uh, genetic changes that occurred during that time in a very short time where their teeth had to get stronger. They, they began to knuckle walk and they, uh, there was a lot of changes in their skeleton and so forth. And it was a period of time, what we call of rapid evolution. And you can show that there was a rapid evolution then and that was when that mutation occurred. And so when, when I was reading about that, I thought to myself, you know, I need to. T- One of the rules, Chris, is when you move into an area that you're not an expert in, you got to find an expert and then yeah. you work with that expert. Uh, and then you, you bring in what, you know, your new knowledge from where you come from, but you, you, uh, make sure that you're grounded with working with an expert in the field. And, um, and so there's, uh, was a famous, uh, anthropologist named Peter Andrews. He's, uh, he is a famous anthropologist. He's at the museum of natural history in London. And I reached out to him and he said, Hey, I, I said, you know, I got this idea. W- w- and, and I, you know, by emails, we sort of got an idea that, you know, that maybe, you know, that maybe the case mutation could have had a benefit for these animals in, in Europe. And so I actually, I flew over to meet with him. It was so important to me. And I met him at the museum and, and we had a wonderful discussion. And, and what he pointed out was that these apes were actually starving, uh, during this change and that many of them went extinct. And he had shown that based on fossil evidence that the, that some of the apes actually survived. And those apes actually migrated back to Africa to become the ancestors of great apes and humans. And another group migrated to Southeast Asia to become these orangutans that live there. And they shared the mutation that uh, in uric acid was shared by both groups so that it had to come from a common ancestor and because they, it came from Europe back to Africa and the South to Southeast Asia, it made it seem likely that it, that it was a European ape, and that's what he had shown in a, in some papers in Nature and so forth, where um, that these that that's where our ancestors came from. So even though we originally came from Africa, there were, we had a sojourn or whatever you want to say, a little trip to Europe and back. Yeah. And so uh, so so then the question was, well could the mutation have increased the uric acid response? And since we know that uric acid is involved in how fructose causes um, obesity, is it possible that when these, uh, when they were having less and less fruit, that the mutation could have led to a stronger uric acid response to the same amount of fruit? So if you had very little fruit, you could now make the uric acid response stronger and could that translate into more fat? Because our work suggested that the uric acid response was directly related to the fat. So what we did is the first thing is we did is we took animal like laboratory animals and we gave them inhibitors that blocked this enzyme, because they carried the enzyme to metabolize uric acid. And we gave them the an inhibitor so that their uric acid levels were higher. And when we gave them sugar, They got a very dramatic rise in uric acid, bigger than uh, the the normal animal did. And they they were much more sensitive to the effects of fructose. So if we gave them fructose, they got much more fat in their liver for the same dose of fructose. They got more um, increase in their triglycerides, worse insulin resistance, and so forth. So it looked like the mutation made them more sensitive to sugar. And then I was very lucky... To meet up with a guy who uh, was uh, the person who resurrected the first extinct uh, gene, so he's kind of like the with Jurassic Park, uh, you know, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is the guy that actually did it, did it first, and he did it way back in the nineteen uh, late '80s. He was the very first one to resurrect an extinct gene, and he's a he's a wonderful man. His name's Steven Benner, and and he had some people that he had trained and. Uh, and they'd gone on to become great scientists too and, and one of them, Eric Gosher, uh agreed to resurrect the extinct gene for us. And so he, he was able to do that. <laughs> and then when we, we did that we, we could show in, in kind of a cell culture system that those that that, uh, that old gene uh, you know allowed animal, or animals to make fat from sugar, but if we, mutated that gene, then the sugar, the fat response was much greater. So it sort of proved that this is what happened. So the net answer to this long answer to your question, Chris, is that, um, you know, there was a mutation that occurred in our past that made us much more sensitive to sugar and, um, and, and so that. Is in the background, we, we are sensitive to sugar and, and people had, you know, what the sugar industry, for example, said, ah, you know, you have to give so much sugar to make an animal super obese. Um, It's, it's not relevant to us, but the truth is that we are a lot more sensitive to sugar than uh, most mammals. And that is because of this mutation. And um, and so the mutation wasn't enough to make us obese. It just raised our uric acid enough to help us survive. But now that we're eating tons of sugar and drinking uh, beer, which has a lot of pairings and, um, and things like that, you know, and uh, other certain foods, we, we are actively uh, increasing our risk for obesity. And so uh, that was kind of the,
0: finding. And, and, and the mechanism by which, so fructose, uh, the sugar molecule that enters the body as either half of the disaccharide uh, table sugar, or now with high fructose corn syrup, which they're just adding fructose to the, to the disaccharide, make it what, 65% or 55% fructose, depending on which one it is. Now you're adding this extra amount of this fruit sugar into the system, and I know you've spoken to this before, and a lot of it's coming in through beverages, which is a high concentration flooding the liver. Let's take it from there. So you chug Gatorade or juice, you know, fruit juice, especially with children, I think of this. So we flood the system, a huge concentration, it's absorbed rapidly, the fructose hits the liver. What goes out, what goes wrong? Yeah.
1: So, so normally uh, when you eat a food or uh, it provides calories, right? And the calories are used to make energy. And the energy is called ATP. Right. Um, And when you make energy, that's how we do everything we do. You know, walk, talk, sing, dance, jump, even thinking. Everything we do requires energy. And so we get our energy from food normally, and then we make the energy. And when we make the energy, you know, in a simple way, um, ATP is the energy we use kind of automatically and at moment to moment. But if we have extra energy, we can store that in the form of fat, or glycogen is another storage, which is the uh, storage form of carbohydrates. So um, in the plant, it's called starch, but in the human it's called glycogen. And they're very similar, but they're not identical. So uh, but fat is our main storage for energy. Uh, You know, if we're going to store energy, it mainly goes in the form of fat. All right. So uh, when you eat fructose, it's different from other nutrients because um, it, it, you know, one of the problems with all, well, one of the problems with all foods is that it requires some energy to make energy. So it's not like you eat food and you just make energy. You have to spend some energy to make energy. And so you're, you're saying this, you
0: burn burn a little bit of that ATP in the yes. of making more ATP.
1: Right. And so you do exactly. So you, you there's some energy with digestion, there's some energy with absorption. There's some energy with metabolism. And so there's a little bit of cost. Right. And most uh, nutrients that you know that, that there's a balance, there's a system to keep the energy levels from falling before you, you know, so that, so while if you, if you're spending a lot of energy to make energy, it there's systems to kind of prevent the energy levels from falling. Right. And, uh, but, uh, with fructose, the enzymes act work so fast that they can cause a transient fall in energy and that, and especially, uh, uh, with the higher the concentration of fructose. So if you drink a soft drink, and you get a big bolus of this fructose, you get a big fall in the ATP levels associated with the acute metabolism or the breaking down of fructose that just there's a drop. Now, normally, when it, when energy drops, if it does drop, it rapidly corrects. And, right. and that rapid correction is because we can make energy and all this. But with fructose, it's a little tricky because what happens is when the energy falls, there's also a fallen phosphates and that, that triggers a, an, a reaction where um, a break, so ATP gets converted to ADP and AMP right, right. and then it gets remade it back to ATP. But when the, it, when the ADP and AMP start to accumulate before they can be made back to ATP, Uh, Fructose activates an enzyme that's like a sweeper and it removes the AMP to make uric acid. The AMP is taken away to make uric acid. And so when the uric acid is being made, it's a direct reflection that AMP is being removed and the AMP can't be made back to ATP because now it's going to uric acid. And that's like an end product that has to be removed. So every time you have a uric acid formed, you're actually kind of removing the ability to replenish that molecule to ATP. Then the uric acid does its own trick, which is to uh, affect the, the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are the energy factories. So the, normally the energy factories, they, these pour out the ATP. but the uric acid tends to cause stress what we call oxidative stress to these energy factories, that suppresses some of the energy production. So you now you're also suppressing the energy production. And there's a rescue enzyme called AMP kinase that normally helps in this setting, it would normally bring back the ATP, but it gets inhibited a little bit by uric acid too. And so as a result, the whole system resets. So what happens with when you eat sugar or fructose, you get this rapid burn and, and temperature goes up a tiny bit. It's a rapid burn. And then there's a, the energy level and the cell falls by like 10, 20%. And normally we keep our energy level really stable. Yeah. So when that energy level drops the body, the, the, the cells in the body, view that sort of like a starvation signal. It's like, uh uh-oh, energy levels are falling. This is an alarm. Turn on the fire alarm. You know, turn on the, you know, it's like a Mayday uh, signal, and and it tells the organism that there could be a problem. And so uh, what happens is that seems to activate processes to hold on to fat, to make fat and to hold on to it, to, mo- to make glycogen. You know, in other words, we, we got to go into a, we're in danger. Let's start storing energy. Let's go out and, and it stimulates hunger and it stimulates thirst and the animal will actually start foraging for food and, and, um, and it, it induces insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is a, um, you know, we think of it as being bad because it's like a forerunner of diabetes, but in a survival state, it's actually good because what it does is it makes the skeletal muscle uh, take up less glucose because uh, when the the skeletal muscle uses insulin to help take up glucose into the muscle, and if you get insulin resistant, then the, the skeletal muscle is resistant to the effects of insulin, and so glucose doesn't get into the muscle, which you think would be bad, but it reduces the the use of energy by the muscle. uh, And at the same time, the glucose levels then stay, stay higher in the blood and the brain, most of the brain doesn't require insulin. And so it can use that glucose as a fuel. So in a way, insulin resistance is a way to kind of shunt uh, the fuel from glucose to preferentially, preferentially to the brain. And, 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 you know, if you're starving, uh, and you, you know you want have enough fuel to the brain because if you can't think and you can't avoid enemies and and find food you're you're in trouble.
0: You're in trouble. Yeah, you're you're extinct. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're extinct. So so fructose turns out to be a uh, a nutrient that animals like to try to um, to prepare for when there's not much food around. So. Um, so it's that's why when fruit ripens in the fall, the birds will eat a lot of fruit to uh, to g- gain fat stores so they can migrate. And that's why uh, bears, you know, when they're hibernating, um, before they hibernate, they'll they'll like dramatically increase their their intake of fruit. And they're not eating one or two fruits a day like you and I are. They're yeah. eating. I mean, <laughs> a bear can eat thousands of grapes, and when it yeah. does. Um, You know, all all at at one big setting, you know, sitting and it will uh, and, and, you know, so that can help it uh, store fat.
0: So what I'm hearing you saying then, so evolution gave us this beautiful trick where we take a molecule of fructose, which is in this fruit sugar and allows us to then store it as fat. Causes insulin resistance in the muscle level, which puts glucose into the bloodstream. So therefore, we have extra um, energy for our brain for activity and thinking. It causes us to start foraging to find more food. It really turns on all these regulatory systems to keep us alive. right? right? And then so we're sitting there in this, in this s- survival state. I know you call it the survival switch. And so you gave an example in the book, which I thought was incredible, where you have the hummingbird. And the hummingbird is sitting there sucking on sugar all day long. It's blood sugar at nighttime is 700 plus, which in correlates we would be at around hundred when we're healthy. It's at 700 yeah. and they're getting a fatty liver. Their liver is all fat. So the survival yeah. switch got turned on fully by morning. They're normal, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so for me, what makes the most sense of all of your work is that this mutation was beautiful because it allowed us to adapt to times of food scarcity. And the only reason it's become detrimental to us now is because we're living in a time of food overload and specifically too much fructose is what I'm hearing. And then the mechanisms are fascinating with the drop in energy, the no regulation, and it's not regulated because the system wants you to store all this fat, right? And so- I find this stuff to be just so, so, so amazing.
1: Then, so this was, uh, so when when we got this far, we started realizing that, you know, fructose was the culprit. But then um, we had this big insights when, you know, from interviews and so forth and talking to people um, that it seemed like there were other ways you could get fat without eating sugar. And uh, this was really kind of uh, a big question you know how could this happen is there another mechanism because for example people uh, you know like I I was interviewed by Jimmy Moore and Jimmy is a person who's a big low carb fan and he said you know I tried to just cut out sugar uh, and uh, but it wasn't enough I had to cut all carbs and so the question was you know why? Why is that? And certainly some animals hibernate that don't eat sugar, but they're able to store fat. And so it seemed like we must, you know, uh, there must be another mechanism. And the big breakthrough was the realization that the body can also make fructose. This was a real breakthrough in thinking We knew, you know, I knew that, um, that the body can make fructose and it. It has, it's reported to happen in diabetics. So people with diabetes, uh, can, can have, uh, can produce a lot of fructose. And the reason is because there's a, there's an enzyme that can convert glucose to fructose and that enzyme, we call it the polyol pathway, but that enzyme uh, gets activated when glucose levels are high. So, uh, in a diabetic who has high glucose, they, they can make fructose. And, and so we were wondering about the, you know, why is it that carbs can do it? And, uh, I was talking to my friend, Miguel Linaspa, who was working, he joined my lab and Miguel had studied this polyol pathway. And he said, you know, maybe, maybe when you eat carbs, even though the glucose levels just go up transiently in the blood with, with some carbs, maybe that's enough, or maybe in the liver, which is kind of the first the blood, when you eat food, the blood first go carrying the nutrients first goes to the liver, and then it goes to the circulation. Maybe the glucose levels following a a carb meal are particularly high in the liver. And could that be activating this, uh, process? So what we did is we gave glucose, not fructose. We gave glucose to animals and, you know, just like fructose causes obesity and all this stuff when you feed it to animals. But we didn't really think, I didn't think glucose was going to be as powerful, but it seemed to be just as powerful. Maybe even, you know, I mean, it was like amazing. The animals got fat, but there's no fructose in the glucose. And so when we looked in the in the animals, though, they were making fructose from the glucose, and then we had an we, we had an animal that couldn't metabolize fructose. We, we had knocked out the fructose enzymes, and when we gave it glucose, we could really block a lot of the effects of the of the glucose uh, of the glucose to cause obesity. In other words, the glucose was causing obesity and insulin resistance through its ability to make fructose. right, And so that was kind of a big discovery because it suggested that the main mechanism by which carbs cause obesity is not so much the glucose insulin pathway that everyone talks about, but rather that glucose was being converted to fructose in the body still by high glucose. And so it still meant that high glycemic carbs were worse because if you eat bread or rice or potatoes, you tend to raise the glucose levels in the blood and the liver. And that's what triggers this conversion to fructose. So that was kind of a big, big discovery. And so we realized that, uh, unfortunately, Chris, it isn't going to be so easy as just cutting back sugar, that high glycemic carbs also can do this. And then, then, you know, we discovered another big pathway that whereby you could, um, make fructose, And that was from salty foods and, um, salt, all when the salt concentration goes up in your blood, you become thirsty. So if you eat a salty meal, you know, you often will get thirsty and then drink water, but uh, the salt, the reason you get thirst is because when you eat salt, it tends to uh, initially increase the salt concentration in your blood. And then you drink water to correct that salt concentration back to normal. So you eat salty food. We like salt it makes us thirsty. We drink water and then we correct the salt concentration, uh, in our, in our blood. And, but when the salt concentration is high, when we're thirsty, that also activates this pathway. And the question was, why would that do that? And the big discovery was that, you know, actually, Fat is also a source of water. And when you break down fat, when fat is metabolized, it actually generates water. So there's no water in fat, but when you break down fat, you produce calories as well as water. So dehydration, mild dehydration, like from and you create that by eating salt. It actually stimulates the production of fructose because the body says, Oh my God, we need to get, we need to hold on to water and fructose stimulates thirst, but fructose also stimulates fat and fat is another source of water. So this, uh, so the animals trying to survive by making sugar or fructose to increase fat as a way to survive, not for the calories, but for the water. And when we realized that salt could activate this pathway, we started looking at the literature and we saw that there was actually a Papers and saying that people who are on a high salt diet tend tend to be obese. And and then I started talking to my friends that that you know measure salt a lot. And they go, oh yeah, you know, everyone knows the that people who are overweight or obese tend to have much higher salt salt content in their diet. It's just known. I said, really? (laughs) Is it that well known? I you know, everyone (laughs) talks about salt as being important in blood pressure, but what a you know, obesity, really? And so we started uh, looking at it. We actually did a study with a uh, Japanese investigator named masa and masa. We started looking at salt intake, like in the Japanese population. And we found that it predicted, uh, you know, obesity and fatty liver and diabetes. Uh, it did. And then when we gave salty food to animals, they, they initially didn't gain weight at all. They were like normal animals. In fact, you know initially there was nothing going on, but then after a few months, suddenly they became really fat and obese. you know, and, uh, insulin resistant fatty liver. And so, uh, it, it it just takes a lot longer. So if you eat sugar, you know, the effects and carbs, the effects are pretty quick, but if you eat salty foods, it's a slower process and salt alone, you know, you, you, you you need to have carbs with the salt because you need to have the glucose present to convert it to fructose. So the salt just turns on the enzyme, but you still are making the fructose from the glucose. So, um, so that's why, you know, for example, like if you're on a low carb diet, uh, and you're eating salty food, you may not gain weight so much because you're not the salt works by helping convert the glucose to fructose. And if you're in a low carb diet, you may not have that much glucose to convert. So, uh, so the, it turns out that it's salt is kind of like an accomplice working with carbs to cause obesity. That's why French fries are so bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I problem with when I study fructose, I go, gosh, I know French fries are bad, but they don't have much sugar in them. They don't have a lot of fructose in them. It's mainly just starch and uh, salt and, and fat right the other That's thing right. that was uh, really an insight was that the way fructose works is it makes you eat more and it produces fat but if you're on a high fat diet with fructose then it's really you can make it much you know fat is a high density calorie so when you eat fat and you're eating fructose the two combine to cause obesity so fat really does play a role in obesity, but it's, uh, it's like the firewood and fructose is like the fire. So fructose initiates the process that makes you want to gain weight. And then, then fat is good because it's like a lot of calories very, that you can eat really quickly. So the French fries are really the, the fat on the French fries also important, but if you're on a low carb diet, or if you're not making fructose, then the high fat diet won't do much because. You're not gonna hold on to the fat because you're um, you're not you're not you're you're actually still regulating your weight well.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, when you think about children and adults now that are obese and how they always feel hungry, it never makes sense because you think somebody's in a calorie excess state, they should not be hungry at all. They should have desire to just lay, you know lay off the food and everything, but the survival switch clearly is turning on these mechanisms that say, hey, your energy depleted, you need to gain more energy, so you need to start foraging. So they're in, their, in the cupboard eating more food, and these kids, and we're blaming the poor kids, what's wrong with you, why do you wanna eat more? Their physiologic mechanisms are screaming at them that you know they're, they're, they need to eat. And, and, exactly. and there's the paradox in this whole thing.
1: Exactly, it's so true, well, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, children, you know, one of the problems is um, fruit juice, and fruit juice yeah. is concentrated sugar. So natural fruits turn out to be really good, you oh. know. So if you eat a a fruit, there's like three to four grams of maybe six grams of fructose in a lot of fruits. Some fruits have more, but if you eat like um, most fruits have like four to five grams of fructose, not so much. And um, and when you eat them, they also ca- carry all these great things like vitamin C and potassium and and they actually do fine. but but when you drink fruit juice, you, you're drinking concentrated um, and often has more than one fruit in it. so you can get a bolus of fructose and because it's liquid, it's absorbed rapidly right And so it can it can be worse. So the pediatric uh, you know groups, know that fruit juice is associated with increased risk for obesity, as you know, um, whereas, uh, natural fruits are, are not so much. And so, um, and we actually did a study in adults where we gave a low fructose diet that was low sugar and low fruit. And we gave a diet with low sugar, but normal amounts of fruit. And when we did that, they both helped they both helped but fruit juice wasn't allowed. <laughs> yeah. So
0: yeah, I, I did a did a podcast with EA Quinn, Dr. Quinn uh-huh. and she was talking about breast milk and how she works specifically with Tibetan women and uh, that yeah. they have a higher fat content in their breast milk and I bet you this polyol pathway through hypoxia that you've yeah. written about in your book is the mechanism yeah. behind how the breast milk's getting thicker. Yeah, with maybe. fat. Yeah, it's 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 just fascinating. All this stuff ties together evolutionarily for survival. And we just become, you know, mismatches between what we're supposed to be doing and what we are doing. And and so again, the 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 research here is just astounding to me that you've given the anthropologic evolutionary history coupled to the mechanistic pathways now coupled to the studies afterwards showing, yeah, we can knock out the fructokinase enzyme or whichever enzyme in the process and show that we can repeat this pattern or stop the pattern based on the ability to raise uric acid. I know you've done it. I've read the, the, the book we're looking at, you know, changing uh, the, the effects of the different processes like the sugar coming in, or as you stated with blocking, so I know I have to be conscious of your time. I wish I could talk to you for two straight hours, but <laughs> I, 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 I have to be conscious of your beautiful existence and how much you have to do. So I'm going to um, spend some more time afterwards talking to the, to the group of, of listeners um, from more pieces of your book because there's so much more to share from here. But I, I really appreciate you just giving everyone sort of the overview of the, the why and how great your work is. So I'm just going to ask you one last question. Sure. You know, I asked this of all my folks, if you were given a golden ticket and you had the opportunity to give it to Congress or the president and get one thing changed, uh, you know, Rick, what would you want changed?
1: Well, I would love to see uh, taxes on soft drinks. I, I think that soft drinks are the major source for liquid sugar um, and, uh, you know, liquid sugars in general, uh, you know, because they're so powerful at causing obesity. Um, and, uh, you know, you can talk, you know, both liquid sugar and solid sugar is bad, yeah. but liquid sugar is absorbed more rapidly and so leads to a higher concentration and a bigger activation of this pathway of the switch. So, I, you know, if we could reduce soft drink intake, I, you know, and in one way is to tax it, yeah. um, that would be a fantastic thing. And I think we also, you know, um, encouraging hydration, drinking more water because a lot of people are mildly dehydrated especially overweight people and so if you're overweight trying to encourage you to drink you know six glasses or eight glasses of water a day would be a great move so that's what i would recommend
0: well rick i appreciate your time um your book the uh, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat comes out on sale February 8th. I have already going to order many copies and give them away. It is a tour that everybody should go through to understand why we are unfortunately metabolically mismatched for the modern society and for your efforts, your 20 plus years of amazing research. I am incredibly grateful.
1: Thank you, Chris. It was a real delight being on your show. Take care.
0: Take care as well. Well, there you have it. Dr. Johnson is uh, one of the top performers in the world of understanding risk of disease based on our choices and our anthropologic history. Now let's take some time to untangle all of the information that was provided in that podcast. Um, It is just chock full of information, the news to use for all of us to make decisions that are in our best interest and for our you know, our best metabolic health or even longevity or pregnancy or childhood. Anything you want to talk about regarding future health is laid out in this, this discussion. You know, he talks about the survival switch. Well, the survival switch, if activated by the mechanisms that he discussed, turns on hunger uh, turns on uh, leptin resistance, right, which drives that hunger. So the hormone leptin is supposed to tell us we're good and satiated, and it doesn't. It, it it says, hey, go keep eating. So even though you're metabolically full of food, you still say keep eating. It causes cravings. You know, this is this, this is caused by the fruit sugar fructose metabolism in the intestines and the brain and tells us to consume more. And we'll get into some of the details of this. It decreases metabolism for all of us at rest. The, the the survival switch also increases fat accumulation everywhere, stored energy, right? And you think about this in the context of Jerry Schulman's work with elevated triglycerides, which are forcing diacylglycerol to turn on insulin resistance at the muscle cell. So multiple mechanisms to get to the same pathway. The body was set up for this mechanistically over centuries and millennia to keep us alive and survive, right? And these genes, if they worked well, kept us alive during periods of famine, starvation, whatever the major crisis was, and that's why these genes persisted. It's a problem now where they're at with our current modern society and food choices. You know, there's, there's increased uh, liver glycogen. So we actually store more energy in our livers, which is, you know, again, potentially problematic in overload states we increase our, our thirst also right and so the, the the glycogen that is a storage form of sugar takes water from the blood in its production which makes us thirsty right so okay we may drink more and if we choose to drink more sugar beverages again compounding the problem it increases blood pressure right this is driven by as he stated uric acid these are problems in the overload state we hold salt in our kidneys, right? The kidneys are supposed to be filtering out excess salt as needed. Well, it turns out we have some salt retention in the survival switch, which again is mechanistically beneficial in, in troubled times, but not great in the overload situation. So the survival switch within humans exists for primarily that reason, to survive. And it is only our choices that break make us mismatched from the survival switch. The choices of overconsumption of fructose. Overconsumption of salt, becoming dehydrated, or any of the other mechanisms like eating too many refined carbohydrates will stimulate this survival switch. And it no longer is a beneficial event for us because we don't have these periods of time where we don't have access to calories. You know, for for thousands of years, humans went through these periods of of boom and bust cycles with food exposure or food uh, availability. And and so these genes were very protective and very useful for humans. Now we don't have those periods of boom or bust anymore when it comes to caloric availability. And so now these genes are all set up to be net negatives for human survival, adaptability, and and just longevity in general. In order to be conscious of time, I'm going to end this podcast now knowing that I'm going to sit down and record a deeper dive into the information learned from nature wants us to be fat and try and tie it in with work that Jerry Schulman did in the insulin resistance uh, podcast I did a few months ago regarding how does that all tie together and these multiple different mechanistic pathways that we have for survival that are now counter to our ability to survive based on modern choices. So. With that being said, that's the end of this podcast. Thank you for taking the time and listening. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Johnson as much as I did. He is absolutely fantastic as a human as well as a researcher, and I'm really grateful that he spent the hour with me. So with that, I hope you all have a great day, and as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider patient relationship. Have a great day.